It's Wednesday, December 16th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. We are on track to get the second coronavirus vaccine approved by the end of the week. On Tuesday, the FDA confirmed that Moderna's two-dose vaccine is safe and effective. In the first week of its rollout, about 6 million doses will be shipped out. The government also bought another 100 million doses from Moderna for a total of 200 million at a cost of $3.2 billion. Sarah Overmall, healthcare reporter at Politico, joins us for more good vaccine news. Next, Bill Barr has called it quits on being attorney general. He put in his resignation and will leave shortly before Christmas, about a month before the Biden administration will take over. The relationship between Barr and President Trump has soured in the last few months, especially after Barr said there was no widespread election fraud. Devlin Barrett, national security reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for more. Finally, many are still experiencing COVID fatigue, and it's happening at the worst time. Despite vaccines starting to roll out, cases are rising and ICU bed availability is low, and people are letting their guard down. Zlati Meyer, staff writer at Fast Company, joins us for what the latest polls say about how over the pandemic everyone is. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. To be on the edge of potential emergency youth authorization and knowing that those doses very soon are going to get into people's arms is just incredible. Joining us now is Sarah Overmall, healthcare reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Yeah, happy to be here. It seems we're on the same track as we were last week with the Pfizer vaccine. The FDA has cleared the path for the second coronavirus vaccine to be approved. This is the one from Moderna. It's very similar to the Pfizer vaccine. The FDA panel will go through it, make recommendations, and hopefully over the weekend and early next week, we'll already be seeing shots administered of the Moderna vaccine. So, Sarah, tell us a little bit about what the FDA panel has said about this vaccine. They basically said it's safe and effective. This is basically deja vu for last week. So the Pfizer vaccine was authorized by FDA last week on very similar data, which is why we are pretty confident about the trajectory for this Moderna one. We expect that after an expert advisory panel meets on Thursday, the FDA could be authorizing it as soon as Friday morning, as it did with Pfizer. And then we will have a CDC panel meeting over the weekend to talk about recommendations for who this goes to first. But because these are really similar vaccines, they have a very similar technology called messenger RNA. They also have almost identical effectiveness rates. We can expect some of the same things. There are some important distinctions for the Moderna one, especially with certain populations that they have different data for. For instance, it shows that it's more effective in younger people than it is in people over the age of 65. That could be a really important distinction as we roll these doses out and find out that maybe the Pfizer one is more ideal for nursing homes and the Moderna one might be more ideal for people who work in high exposure areas but aren't necessarily as old as somebody who's in a more vulnerable situation. So these are the things we're going to find out over the next few days. How many doses are we going to be able to see go out in the first push? So there actually will be more of the Moderna doses out in the first push than there were of the Pfizer ones. Government officials have said that nearly 6 million will be put out into more than 3,000 sites next week if we do have this authorized, which we're expected to. That's in comparison to 2.9 million doses from Pfizer that are going out as we speak and 2.9 million from Pfizer that have been held back for second dose. So between the two of them, 
each has promised 20 million doses apiece this month, which is 40 million total, but they all are two-dose regimens. You can think of this as 20 million very high-need people getting doses this month. There was some criticism with the government's action on the Pfizer vaccine for not buying that extension or extra doses. But on this case with the Moderna vaccine, the U.S. did exercise their right to buy 100 million additional doses of the Moderna vaccine. Tell us a little bit about that and then the costs associated with it. So they had options with both of those pharmaceutical companies to buy 100 million doses originally, but the option to buy hundreds of millions more with each of them. The criticism lately has been that they did not exercise that option when they could have with Pfizer. So they had an option to buy up to 500 million doses from them. And according to Pfizer, they offered that to the government multiple times and the government didn't take them up on that. And so they moved on. They have signed multiple different agreements with other countries in the world. I mean, think about the entire world wants these highly effective vaccines. So kind of to stem that loss or to shore up our supplies here in the United States, the United States announced late last week that they would buy 100 million more of the Moderna vaccine. And that brings its total cost with Moderna to $3.2 billion, which is eye-popping. But when you think about how much this company which has never actually mass produced a vaccine or product ever before. Moderna, this is going to be their first authorized product. This is a huge undertaking. That's why there's so much money going towards this. So you can think about this as the U.S. trying to shore up its supplies in this arena, but it also has multiple other agreements out there with six manufacturers total to get, if everything goes right, 900 billion doses. That might seem like a lot, like way too much for the U.S., but we don't know how many of those are going to work. We even just learned last week that another vaccine from Sanofi and GlaxoSmithKline is going to be delayed until the end of 2021 because they didn't get really good results. So this is why the U.S. government is betting so big. And last thing I wanted to ask real quick was just about how the Moderna vaccine protects. There's been things made that it can uh, reduce severe effects of coronavirus, They're hoping, obviously, that it'll reduce transmission rates. But that's kind of what the focus was of their study as well and just how effective this would be. So that was something we learned in the Food and Drug Administration's briefing documents Tuesday morning was that not only is this effective broadly, but there's a suggestion that after the first dose, it might have even have curbed infections. And you might think that's pretty obvious. That's what vaccines are supposed to do. But we don't actually know yet how effective vaccines would be at preventing transmission, which is kind of the ultimate goal. We don't want people to have to get sick in the first place. This indicates that the Moderna vaccine might be able to do that. And then, like you said, with severe COVID illness, there are really promising results from the Moderna vaccine. There were 30 severe illnesses in the placebo arm and none in the vaccine arm. That's great news. So we actually have, between this and Pfizer, two really promising candidates first out of the gate. We kind of couldn't expect for better, to be honest. So now it's, you know, it's the challenge of getting this out to people, getting it to the people who need it most right away and meeting the demand that we know we're going to have in the United States and also in the world. Sarah Overmall, healthcare reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Always. Thank you for having me. It's an amazing arc if you think about that relationship. Barr was for Most of the two years he's been the attorney general, the president's most effective and most outspoken cabinet member. 
and you could really see a falling off in the relationship in the last month or so. Joining us now is Devlin Barrett, national security reporter at the Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Devlin. Thanks for having me, Oscar. Well, we were talking about it last week, and now it's official. Attorney General William Barr is stepping down. The president tweeted out the announcement on the same day that the Electoral College met to vote Joe Biden in as uh, president-elect. And uh, so we kind of were expecting this. We had been hearing rumblings that this was going to happen, that A.G. Barr wanted to step down before President Trump's term was up. And now we got it. The big question is, did he resign or was he fired? Uh, we're told by folks on both sides of the conversation that he did resign and it was a his choice, not anyone else's. We continue to do reporting and ask questions, but both sides say fairly emphatically that it was an amicable parting that, you know, whatever the president's complaints have been in recent weeks and months, that was not what drove this particular decision on this particular day. Bill Barr kind of made this splash on the stage right after Robert Mueller presented his report, and that was kind of the first big exposures that a lot of people had to Bill Barr, at least in the Trump administration. And from then on, you know, Bill Barr had been kind of accused of doing the president's bidding on a lot of things. He was a very big supporter of him, but even still, when it came down to things looking into the Russia probe, the Durham report, and even backing him on the election, that the election was stolen, those are big splits between uh, the attorney general and, and Donald Trump. A lot of the president's complaints have been about things that Barr essentially would not do for him during the campaign, meaning, uh, you know, announce investigations or say that he had found significant voter fraud. Those are obviously very important things in the president's mind that Barr did for him. But it's it's an amazing arc. If you think about that relationship, Barr was for most of the two years he's been the attorney general, the president's most effective and most outspoken cabinet member. And you could really see a falling off in the relationship in the last month or so, really primarily because of the election. What does this say for the legacy of Bill Barr as attorney general? I mean, it's just a weird situation. I get it. The administration is going to be ending pretty soon, but you can't hold out one month. I don't know. That just kind of keeps playing in my head. Like what made it so urgent that you just had to get out right now? I think part of what the curiosity is inside the Justice Department and even among, you know, former Justice Department officials is what's going to happen at the Justice Department in the next month? Are there going to be a large number of pardons or pardons of controversial cases like, for example, the Russia investigation cases or other cases that would displease or anger people at the Justice Department? You know, there's been folks advocating for a pardon for Julian Assange of WikiLeaks, advocating for a pardon of Edward Snowden, the former NSA contractor. And I think one of the big questions that remains to be answered is, do we end up seeing the types of pardons that Bill Barr will be glad he wasn't there to have to deal with or answer questions about? Because that's pardons are obviously completely the president's prerogative. But we just don't know. And that's, I think, one of the big unanswered questions as we head into sort of this last month of the Trump administration. How was Bill Barr received by his colleagues and his subordinates in the Justice Department I think Barr, especially toward the end of his time, had a very strained relationship with a lot of the folks at the Justice Department. Not his inner circle, obviously, but the rank and file, the, the career prosecutors. He gave a, a speech in September, which is still pretty jarring when you read it, just talking about how career officials were themselves often acting politically and with poor motives or wrong motives. And I just never seen a, the leader of an agency 
publicly attack the employees of that agency while he was still he or she was still running that agency. That's just an incredibly strange thing to do. And the relationship between Barr and a lot of Justice Department employees was very strained. Some of them wrote letters during the election campaign, public letters to newspapers denouncing Bill Barr, which is pretty much unheard of. One of the big rifts between Bill Barr and President Trump was that he didn't announce that there was any investigation into Hunter Biden, uh, Joe Biden's son, for failing to report income in China, things with Burisma. There's a lot of stuff going on there. What does this mean for the incoming you know, head of the D- Department of Justice, uh, Joe Biden's pick for attorney general? H- how does all this kind of impact and, and kind of flow into that? Well, it's been a really interesting process to watch the Biden transition folks seemingly struggle to pick an attorney general candidate. You know, the attorney general is a big enough job that it's usually picked earlier in this process. And all our reporting is that they are still working on it as they've been working on it for weeks now. And I think whoever the next attorney general is, is going to have one, a very tough confirmation fight, because I think both parties understand the importance of that job and how the ability of whoever the attorney general is to steer or stop investigations can be so key in Washington and in government. And two, once they're confirmed, they're going to have a huge task ahead of them in terms of improving morale, restoring some confidence in the public's perception of the Justice Department, and sort of ending some of these battles that have been raging both in and around the Justice Department for the last four years. Devlin Barrett, national security reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Oscar. The baseline concerns remain that we're seeing substantial increase in community spread. We're seeing significant increases in total number of positive cases and more importantly, perhaps the positivity rate. Joining us now is Lati Meyer, staff writer at Fast Company. Thanks for joining us, Lati. Thanks for having me, Oscar. Wanted to talk about COVID fatigue. We've been talking about this a lot on the podcast over the course of the pandemic and You know, it's kind of just grown over the months, really. Everybody take a little step back and just kind of remember at the height of the pandemic, you know, everybody was wearing their masks, wearing gloves, disinfecting everything, packages. You could let them sit outside of the door for a day or two if the virus was on it, that it died, you know, constant hand washing and hand sanitizer. In a lot of cases, I think that has kind of waned. I think a lot of people aren't taking as many of the stringent precautions that they once took. And this is all a result of this COVID fatigue. There's a new Harris poll that you guys did there at Fast Company. Tell us a little bit about the findings and how people are really tired of this whole thing. Well, what we wanted to do was we were trying to figure out what impact COVID fatigue has on one sticking to these safety measures that we all know about, like social distancing and mask wearing, et cetera, as well as what impact, if any, it has on people's news consumptions. And as it happens, COVID fatigue, in fact, does manifest itself in an alarming number of people shrugging off these safety measures. In addition, we're finding that a good number of people are consuming less news about the pandemic than they had previously. The news aspect of it is kind of interesting to me. You know, people are tired of even just hearing about it. And, you know, for those of us in the news industry, it's kind of a little difficult to kind of devote so much attention to it. But it's an important thing. So tell us a little bit about the findings with regards to the news overload aspect. I think it's just sort of this overall decreased appetite for news coverage about the pandemic. I mean, that's sort of what people have been listening to 
day and night, day and night for about nine months now. And for some people, enough is enough. What the exclusive Fast Company Harris poll found was that close to one fifth of Americans are consuming less COVID related news than they were half a year ago. Now, this obviously isn't everybody. There's still 89 percent of Americans are keeping up with the pandemic news at least once a week. And 63 percent report they check media about COVID-19 related topics at least once daily. So it's not this complete news famine that we might fear, but people are just turning off the TV, tuning out of podcasts, not clicking on links on stories that deal with COVID. They're sick and tired of being sick and tired, you know? Yeah, and you spoke to a few experts about why this might be happening too. And it totally makes sense. You know, at the height of this, all of the stuff was new. The news was new. We had to see how we could beat it. We thought there would be an end pretty soon if we took all of these safety precautions. But that really didn't happen. It's been with us now almost a year. We're getting vaccines rolled out, but this is still going to go on for some time. And people are just kind of like, well, the hell with it. I think at the beginning, a lot of people thought, I'm going to stick to the rules. I'm going to follow them tooth and nail, cross every T, dot every I. And if we're all good boys and girls, this will end. Well, that unfortunately did not happen. And people sort of feel, you know, I did my part. What's going on? Also, even people that knew that the pandemic was going to go on, it wasn't going to go away after, say, a week or two. They probably didn't anticipate being where we are in December if you would have asked them back in June. And that sort of also is leading to this degree of COVID fatigue. Yeah, it's this false sense of security, too, that, you know, a lot of people have, you know, maybe they see the news out there. There's a lot of people getting infected and getting severely sick and dying. And I don't want to diminish that at all. But the reality is that the mortality rate of COVID-19 is about 1%. So, you know, a lot of people are seeing people get it and maybe get over it real quick and saying, oh, well, it's not going to be that bad. So a lot of people get this false sense of security with all of that. And it leads to what we've been talking about, relaxing the rules a little bit for themselves. I think for some people, it's a pure sense of rebellion. You're telling me to do this? Damn it. I'm not going to do it. There are those people. And then there are people that feel, well, I saw my brother-in-law or my roommate or my partner or my mother or my child get it. They were sick for a while and then they got through it. So I'll roll the dice. So there's sort of this lackadaisical attitude that stems from, I'll take my chances. (laughs) Right, exactly. The poll that you guys conducted also looked at air travel, avoiding mass transit, indoor gatherings, family, friends, things like that. What did you guys find out about any of that? We're seeing that all that is diminishing. I mean, for some people, for example, mass transit, they've had to get on mass transit, let's say, to go to work. Air travel, particularly around the holidays, some people are saying, nope, I want to go visit my family or nope, I want to go on vacation. Indoor gatherings with friends and family, well, that obviously goes part and parcel with any holiday celebration, although experts are telling us to avoid doing that. Hand washing, we've been doing since day one. How many times have we all sung happy birthday twice in a row to hit that 22nd mark? (laughs) And of course, disinfecting surfaces and wearing masks in public. And, you know, I spoke to people who said once upon a time, I was leaving packages that I received from Amazon or Walmart out on my front porch for a few days. I was wiping down my purse when I came home from the grocery store. And today people are just not keeping that same heightened sense of vigilance. It's no longer DEFCON 1 as far as people are concerned. Zlati Meyer, staff writer at Fast Company. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Oscar. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.